This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. And this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. And we're very excited today to welcome Mike Tenenbaum. He is ESPN's front office insider, also the former general manager of the Jets, former executive vice president of football operations for the Dolphins. He was an agent at one point. He's had a fascinating career. So much to talk to you about Mike T, which I'm going to have to call you with all these mics that I've got around <laughs> me. Um, I, I guess I would start by asking you, what is the big story in football today? Because I feel like every day it, it's a different thing. Well, I would say, obviously, let, let's we'll talk about the Super Bowl, and that's certainly sort of chronologically appropriate. But beyond that, I think there's five players, guys. Uh, Carson Wentz, Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson, Aaron Rodgers, and Matt Stafford that, in my mind, could truly have a transformational impact on what we see in the NFL. And I think we're moving much more towards the NBA. What I mean by that, sort of like player-driven transactions where they simply say, hey, despite what my contract may say, I'm not interested in being with this team. We saw a little bit over the last couple of years with Jalen Ramsey of Jacksonville, uh, Jamal Adams of the Jets, Khalil Mack of the Raiders, but these five quarterbacks, in my opinion, can really change the narrative of the offseason. You, when you mentioned about Jared Goff and Matt Stafford, that trade, and you're talking to a big Detroit Lions fan, and I, when I saw the trade, my first thought was, you know what? I like this because first you get Jared Goff, and then the Lions get three first-round picks. And, and what it tells me is that it looks like the Lions are thinking next season of trying to go deep. This is where we're going to harness it up. Notice my pronoun. This is where we're going to harness it up and try to go deep into the season. Yeah, I like to trade a lot from Detroit because Jared Goff may be the answer. And I think when you look at head coach Dan Campbell and office coordinator Anthony Lynn, two guys I've worked with, they're going to want to run the ball. DeAndre Swift, I think, um, will have an excellent opportunity to take the next step in his career. And when you look at Jared Goff's best year in 2018, Todd Gurley had 17 rushing touchdowns, so a good run game, so uh, play action, I think that plays the Goff strengths. And with those additional first-round picks, guys, if it doesn't work out with Goff, they're certainly loaded up to find their next quarterback. So I really like this trade from the Lion perspective. Hey, Mike, it's Mike Lynch up in Boston, uh, not far from where you grew up, over in Needham, and um, I'm sure all your friends are shoveling their driveways up here. Um, <laughs> what, is the, what is the biggest obstacle to making a trade like this Goff for Stafford trade? What's the biggest obstacle? Well, it's really about, and I've said this for years, I think the bullseye gets smaller and smaller because you have to line up the salary cap implications of money that's been paid to the player that accelerates into your cap, the cash implications of what contracts are we now going to be inheriting and can we pay that, and then ultimately the draft choice compensation. So when you figure cash cap and draft choices, and now you have two teams and you have a head coach, GM, 
and an owner, that's six people trying to agree on three significant deal points. And if any of those things break down anywhere, there's no deal. So I think over the years, you really need to thread the needle, especially given the complexities and the amounts of money we're talking about. You know, the third highest cap charge for the Rams this season will be Jared Goff, which is really remarkable. Their first is going to be Aaron Donald. The second is Jalen Ramsey, which is understandable given how great they are. But literally their third highest cap charge is Jared Goff. Wow. So it feels like, uh, Mike, you know, one of the things that, that you're saying is that and maybe I'm taking it too far, but but the very economics of the league seem to be shifting around a little bit, and and presumably that would be uh, a ripple effect of sorts of these players, as you say, sort of thinking of themselves differently, teams thinking of themselves differently. Play that out for us. If you're sitting in a front office, how does it make you think about your payroll? How does it make you think about sort of the broader economic picture of your team in the league? I think context is really important. So just staying with the same trade, I think when you look at through the lens of the Lions, you got a new head coach in Dan Campbell. He signed a six-year deal. They don't think Max Stafford's going to take him to where they want to go, which is reasonable given his age, his injuries. And in year one, let's give a shot at a much younger quarterback who may or may not be our quarterback for the next 10 years. We could afford it. So I think it makes a lot of sense. I think an underreported aspect of this contract, of this trade, um, is really, and I believe he's really good coach, Sean McVay, but this is not his finest moment by any stretch. Back in September of 2019, he's part of a decision to pay Jared Goff over $100 million in guaranteed money, and 18 short months later, he's saying we can't win with him. In fact, they, they started John Wolford in a playoff game. So when you look at the economics, guys, you're saying that he, this guy is so bad that we're going to further handcuff ourselves to improve our team by having to make a quarterback switch. So I think that's a situation where their general manager, Les Need, has to sit there and say from a big-picture economic standpoint, how can we still acquire enough good players over the next two to three years without a first-round pick to make ourselves competitive? You want to talk about the Super Bowl for a second, and more importantly for Tampa Bay. Uh, they are the first city to host – a Super Bowl-bound team. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to play in their home stadium. You put that on top of they won the World Series and they also won the Stanley Cup. You would think that in a normal time, the bars and restaurants around out there would be like, hey, we're going to give two-for-one sales. We're just making money hand over fist. But COVID just put a slam to all of that. I I hope in, in normal times uh, – People are able to recover and businesses are able to recover. Bar, before Mike yeah. answers, I, I, I just want to make sure because I don't want you getting hate mail from Dodgers fans. They didn't quite win the World Series. Yeah, I know. I know. They, all, they got there. <laughs> they got there. They, they got, got there. there. I know. I, I know. I just don't I want, you know, I don't want Mike Lynch's, uh, you know, pal Mookie Betts calling you up and being like, come on, Bar. Yeah, I, I, I get it. I get it. But it's like they were there. I they mean, were there. They, they were there. You know, it's not like the Tigers. The new, they the weren't there. The new title town. The new title town. <laughs> Look, Tampa uh, has an incredible string going, and, and I would tell you, too, the aura of attraction for professional athletes in the South is, you know, it's real. You know, I worked for the Dolphins for a number of years, and, you know, when you can end every sentence by, hey, we practice and play on natural grass, we have great weather, and, oh, by the way, we don't have any state income taxes, 
that gives you a 7 to 10% competitive advantage over some of these higher tax rate states. So um, obviously the pandemic is going to hurt businesses short term. But from an athlete standpoint, it's real about the difference between playing uh, in certain states. Your ticket and your breakthrough moment with the, in the getting into a job in the National Football League was your uh, uh, handle and grasp on the salary cap. I know you sent uh, proposals out to every single team. What did you find so – I went to an accredited college, and I cannot figure out the salary, salary cap at all. What did you find so intriguing about it, and, and, and that would be your vehicle to get into the National Football League? I was really lucky, guys, just the right place at the right time. You know, for 75 years, there was basically no free agency uh, in terms of if a player was picked by a team, they had certain reserve clauses. Now, there was a little bit of plan B, and then there was litigation in 1982, 1987, and then finally in 93, there was a big class action settlement where players got free agency and the owners got cost certainty in the form of salary cap. I happened to be at law, in law school at the time at Tulane Law School. They had a program for sports law, and literally there was only one team in town, and I was the Saints. So I started as a literally unpaid intern driving players to the airport and then studying the salary cap. And I was fascinated that in the first year and a half, there were teams that had a massive competitive advantage to understand who to pay, what positions, um, too soon, too late. And when I graduated law school, I put a book together. I sent it out to every team. I got, at the time, 29 rejections. And uh, Coach Belichick hired me in Cleveland. And my job, basically, for him was to help him understand the cap, really start the whole idea of strategic planning, again, of who to pay, who to let graduate. And, you know, to kind of earn my keep, I was a very low person in the personnel department. But I just felt like there was a competitive advantage if you understood from a strategic planning standpoint, how to allocate resources. And so, Mike, as you think about how the role of the GM has changed and and evolved and relationships with coaches, relationships with owners, I mean, you know, the GM sits in, uh, you know, better than anyone, sort of a precarious position, but a very powerful position, depending on on the situation. What's the right formula in in your estimation for success in sort of balancing all of those interests? Well, that's a great question. I've been fortunate in my career where I've sat in a few different seats. So I sat at the Jets for years where Coach Parcells was the head coach and GM, and we had success. Um, I was the general manager of the Jets for seven years. Uh, We had a very fair amount of success, and I had final say on everything. Um, I was the executive vice president of football operations at the Dolphins and didn't have final say. And I think you could distill all those dynamics down to one really fundamental concept, which is when you have the privilege of any of those jobs, all you really are, in my opinion, is you are the point guard of information. And what I mean by that is, let's go back to the Goff example. To me, it doesn't really matter if Les Need or Sean McVay have final say. What's really uh, important, guys, is the understanding that, hey, if we sign Jared Goff in September of 2019 to this $100 million-plus contract, here's what we can't do. Our left guard's going to be the third-round pick. Our starting corner has to be a fourth-rounder or lower because we simply can't afford to pay those positions competitively in the free agent market. So if we collectively, uh, Mr. Kroenke, the owner, Coach McVay, if we believe that Jared Goff can take us to where we want to go, we got to keep him. That's a non-negotiable. But here's what we can't do. And I think that's what being an effective leader is. You have to communicate. You have to put down what 
we're getting, what's the benefits, and what the concerns are. And uh, in any of those positions that I had or saw firsthand, I think it always comes back down to a leader or someone that can communicate and put all the information on paper. And oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes you could build consensus because the information is going to lead you to the right decision. Is the league doing enough for diversity when it comes to head coaches and in the front office? What do they need to do more to address that? So I had the privilege last semester of teaching a class uh, at Columbia. Uh, it was in their master's program. It was the business of the NFL. We spent a fair amount of time looking at the Rooney Rule. And I think the short answer is they certainly could do a better job because when we look at even this week's game, Eric Bieniemy, the talented offense coordinator of the Chiefs, Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator of the Buccaneers, they should be head coaches by any objective metrics, and the league needs to do a better job there. But going back to Columbia, what we studied and what we came up with, and I give our students a ton of credit, is I think a much more impactful and sustainable change to our system is looking at the entry-level position. And what I mean by that, if there was a much greater emphasis on gender, racial diversity, on internships, entry-level jobs, hopefully in three to four years, none of this discussion is going to be happening because more people, the, the playing field would be equal at the entry-level position. So as we they work their way up in the system, these other opportunities will be very organic. And I think what we're talking about with the Rooney Rule right now is we're trying to put a Band-Aid at the very top, but I think there's a much more effective systemic way to solve it long-term. Mike, um, before Bill Parcells uh, left Foxborough for the New York Jets, he had one of the great lines at his uh, exit press conference. If they want you to cook the meal, they at least ought to let you buy the groceries, which means the head coach should have a really strong say in who the, the, in the personnel decisions. And then you wound up working with Bill Parcells, who self-admittedly had no clue about the salary cap at all, uh, which is kind of funny. But... Uh, so how how do you how do you make a happy marriage between the general manager and the head coach? Well, you know that was really like the big break in my career. You know, I got to spend four years every single day with coach, and he taught me way more about life and how to treat people, and lead and manage and scout and everything. Um, I was very lucky, Mike. I was just at the right place at the right time, and you know I still speak to coach very regularly, and he he has more wisdom than I think he'll ever share with others sometimes, which. I always talk to him about, but um, again, it really came back to, he was very clear what he wanted. And I'll never forget this. We had a meeting at the end of the 1997 season and our eighth need was running back. Our number one need was quarterback. He wasn't sold on O'Donnell. We had this running back, Adrian Morrell, who was a solid B, not great, but good enough. And literally a week later, Curtis Martin's agent called up and said, Hey, Curtis is a restricted free agent. He wants to play for coach. And I remember telling Curtis's agent, well, thanks, but no thanks. We have he, running back is our eighth need. We have so many other things we got to get done. I can't imagine we would give up a first and third round pick for a running back when there's so many other holes to fill. So I go back to coach's office at the end of the day, which was our routine. I said, coach, here we are with Curtis Martin. I know we're not going to be interested, but I just want to make sure you know about the call. He said, absolutely not. We're going to go get him. And I'm like, well, why is that? We have all these other holes to fill. He said, because when your best player – is your best person and best teammate and best worker. He'll make everybody else around here better. And it's called being a force multiplier. And for me, like that was wisdom that has stayed with me for the rest of my career. And so, 
Mike, I want to go back to something you said at, at the top and, and dig in just a, a little bit more because we talk a, a lot about um, the NBA on, on this program. And, and I know that you had uh, the experience uh, of repping some very well-known coaches, including Steve Kirk, um, you know, back in the day. So you understand the mechanics of, of that league, of the NBA versus the NFL. And, and those comparisons, I'm just fascinated by them because the NBA does continue to be so ascended. It seems to be so player-driven uh, in many ways, as you alluded to earlier. So play that out for, for the NFL, if you will. And, you know, if we do continue to see more empowered athletes, if we start to see the sorts of moves that, that you've described, how does it change the game of football in your estimation? How does it change the way teams are run and the way teams are owned and how they're coached? Well, that's you know, such a simple question and a complicated answer. I think a good example really to talk about is uh, let's look at what's going on with Sean Watson. Like yeah. that's, to me, uh, just completely uh, inexcusable. Six months ago, we signed a contract. What happened? Like, what did you do uh, systemically within that organization that uh, he's even thinking about leaving? He is too good, too talented, too young, too high character that he should be there, you know, for the foreseeable future. So I want to know what happened in that building that would make him want to leave. And um, that, to me, is really the conversation that needs to be had because – Deshaun Watson's exactly what you're looking for. He's a top 10 player in the league, and he's a great person. He's a great leader. So that's a question that needs to be asked is, like, organizationally, what happened? And fix that right away because you may go another 10 or 15 years and not find that player. Well, and it's funny just to jump in here for for a second, Mike. I mean, it's interesting to to think about that, and maybe it's a total coincidence and, you know – life is full of them but you think about what happened with Deshaun Watson you just look across town and see what happened with James Harden and his ownership and his relationship you know with his team uh, at the Rockets and you know he gets out I mean that that's a fascinating case study there again thinking about sort of NBA versus NFL and, and maybe them sort of blending a little bit in terms of uh, the, this sort of power to the players movement. Yeah, and, I, and again, I think what it does is it puts a much greater emphasis on your organization has yeah. to be – it holds the whole organization accountable. Like, you want to have a place where – and look at what Tom Brady's done in Tampa Bay. You, you call look at it as an aura of association, meaning players want to go there. Leonard Fournette, Antonio Brown, Rob Gronkowski. And it's about giving players a chance to be fulfilled, obviously, on the field. But big picture, guys, it's about helping them get to where they want to go off the field. And again, going back to Watson – that guy can never leave your building. Like, that's what you're trying to build upon. So I would be really concerned if I was in that building and, and having to look in the mirror and asking really hard and sober questions of, like, what in the world did we do here? Because Deshaun Watson is everything we want our team and the league to be about. The NFL, you have to salute them because they got to the end game, which is the Super Bowl here coming up in just a few days. They went through all 17 weeks with COVID hanging over their head, did you think that the league would get all the way through to this point? They deserve a ton of credit, and so does the NFLPA. And um, it's really remarkable what they were able to do. And I thought maybe we would be looking at a you know, March or April 1st Super Bowl and a, a draft on June 1st, but somehow, some way, they were able to pull it off. It wasn't perfect. I know uh, a lot of the joy and enjoyment wasn't there for players and coaches, but given what you know, society as a whole has had to deal with, that's obviously very minor. So, again, 
I give a lot of credit to the leadership of both the league and the union. Mike, uh, there's not going to be a combine in Indianapolis. I guess the, the players are going to work out at their own uh, you know, pro days on campus. So basically the senior bowl was it where uh, guys around the country uh, congregated. Is this going to be one of those years where somebody is going to slip through the cracks or fall through the cracks or rise through the cracks uh, when the draft uh, finally comes? I, I think maybe a little bit of both. And I think fundamentally, like in talking to teams around the league, I think there's just a general concern about we don't know nearly as much as what we usually do. So I know some teams are saying, I'd rather have a pick in 2022 when we get to know more about these prospects than you know, draft in such a speculative way this year because you know, there's opt-outs. Like One of the top five players this year is going to be Jamar Chase, a very uh, talented wide receiver for LSU. And um, he, he, he didn't play this year. So you know, how can you possibly um, – you know, what do you do with him? And I think there's a lot of those sort of like conversations about, you know, is a pick worth more next year than this year? Well, Mike, we could talk to you all day. This is fascinating. Before we let you go, what's your pick uh, for the Super Bowl? Who's going to win? Well, that's also a simple question and complicated answer. I think (laughs) if... I got uh, money on this. I think (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is Bloomberg. It's about an investment, right? That's right. That's right. I I would say that it's... um, if Kansas City and Tampa played 10 times, Kansas City would win seven. Um, without Eric Fisher, the talented left tackle of Kansas City, I think the pass rush is a great equalizer. But with that said, I'm going to go Kansas City uh, 27, Tampa Bay 24. Wow. Okay. Mm. All right. Interesting. Interesting. I, I think it's going to be a good game. I think it's going to be a good game. Uh, we know you'll be watching, and uh, we love catching up with you. Come back and visit with us before too long. We really appreciate Mike Tannenbaum. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot, and I uh, hope you guys stay safe and healthy, and uh, appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Be well. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I'm Mike Lynch, and I worked in the Mike Tannenbaum's hometown of Needham, Massachusetts, for 40 years. And you can follow me at LynchyWCVB. And I'm Jason Kelly. Follow me at Jason Kelly News. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week. We're going to catch up with Rob Higgins. He is the executive director of the Tampa Bay Sports Commission, the new title town. i got a big game going on. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio, around the world and online, wherever you get your podcasts.